As the scripture and the song we've just heard attests, there is indeed a time for everything, including a time to introduce the guest preacher, and that will be my great pleasure today. Uh, in selecting today the individual who would speak to us on this auspicious occasion, uh, it was possible for us to have gone perhaps with one of the uh, marvelous past pastors of this church or chosen to reach out to one of the leading lights in our national Christian scene. But the Holy Spirit led me instead to select a younger candidate, uh, someone who uh, brings to our church's life and to this moment in our history together a confluence of three credentials that I felt were particularly important to us. First of all, Arthur Bamford knows the heart of Christ's church because he's a child of this church. He is the uh, youngest son of, of Tom and Lucette Bamford. Uh, he is the brother of Tab, and uh, he has spent his whole life practically immersed in the life of what God is doing here in this congregation. He is the grandson of our founders, of course, Arthur and Gladys DeCryder. Art also knows the heart of his own generation. Uh, he has thought uh, deeply about faith and what it means to the rising generations that are not only the present but also the future of our church. And believing we must continue to connect with them and learn from them and encourage them in every way, I was excited to have someone from that generational cohort speak to us at this particular moment. Above all, as I've learned through many conversations that Art and I have had while he's been a student out at Fuller, uh, Arthur has a deep heart for Jesus Christ who is the great constant amidst all of the changes of our world and who is the head of the church in all times and in all places. Art holds a bachelor's degree from Calvin College and a master's in communication from the University of Denver. He is finishing up right now an additional master's degree at Fuller Theological Seminary and then is going to be heading out shortly to uh, a doctoral program in media studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. Uh, you will notice from these photographs that Art has grown up a little bit since uh, he was last with his grandfather uh, in some important settings here. You'll see that he, you'll soon discover that he has grown up very, very nicely. And so without further ado, I hope you will join me in welcoming to the pulpit of Christ Church on this 50th anniversary weekend, Mr. Arthur Bamford. Once upon a time, a Sunday school teacher here at Christ Church pulled me aside and said, You know, Art, there's something out of the ordinary about you. I would not be the least bit surprised if someday you were to end up in a federal prison. <laughs> but then I had another Sunday school teacher who suggested what seemed like an even more far-fetched idea, which is that I'd end up in this pulpit. So I'm very glad to be here today, knowing that, at least for now, only one of those predictions has come to pass. But joking aside, I am so honored to have been asked uh, to share God's word with us here on this special occasion. And to be honest, preparing for this turned out to be a great blessing for me, as it gave me an opportunity to think back and reflect on all the, the happy memories that I have of growing up in this church. 
It's hard to imagine standing in this pulpit today that I was baptized a few feet away and that I took my first steps out in the narthex during a mission festival dinner. Always the obedient child, I heard someone say, go into all the world, so I got up and went. But in a more figurative sense, I've been learning how to walk in this church ever since with more than my share of stumbles and falls. And so many of you have been the big, strong hands that I've looked up to and relied on to help me back up and hold me steady and to walk alongside me. So while I have to preach a sermon today, since that's what they asked me to do, uh, I do hope that this might also suffice as a very long overdue thank you note to all of you and a love letter to this beautiful sanctuary and church that our family has built together and shared as its spiritual home for as long as I can remember. I thought it might be worthwhile to ask a question here today that we tend to overlook as the church or to take for granted, which is, why do we do this? Why do we gather like this week in and week out? In recent years, there's been a growing trend in our culture of people who identify themselves as spiritual but not religious, which I think reflects an interesting perspective on institutions like the one that we're here celebrating today. These folks look at the church and think, I see what the value is and what the benefits are, and I think I can experience those same things without participating in what they call organized religion, although in my experience, it's way less organized than it looks. But sadly, many Christians I've encountered seem to share a similar sort of perspective. Uh, There are certain things that they enjoy and benefits that they reap for themselves by participating in the life of the church. And those things for them might answer the question, why do we do this? And I don't mean to be too critical of that. We should enjoy worshiping the God that we love, and we are richly blessed by being a part of the church. But rather than answering the question, why do we do this thing called church uh, from our perspective, by simply affirming those things that you and I both know to be valuable and meaningful for us, uh, I wanted to approach this question today from what we might call God's perspective. As we study scripture and explore the history of God's relationship with his people, what seem to be a few of the primary intentions uh, that God has for establishing his church, which he calls us and commands us as his beloved sons and daughters and disciples to be a part of? As you may recall, the first of these is that we are called to remember. Our memories are, in a sense, the shield and sword that we carry with us through life. They're molded by where we are from. They're weathered by what we've been through. And they're inscribed with certain marks and symbols that remind us from time to time who we are and what kind of people we come from. Some of the memories that we carry are heavy things that we cover ourselves with or hide behind or even cower beneath, anticipating that we'll be hurt once more like we have been in the past. Or we wield certain memories, often those most deeply ingrained in us, and use them to lash out against anyone that happens to hit a particular nerve. But we also have memories that we cling to, and that we carry close to our hearts as we march into the battles that we face in life. They are a source of confidence that we can trust and rely on to deflect the slings and arrows that might fly at us. We draw upon certain memories from time to time to give us strength and courage to defend what we know is true, and to protect that which is most sacred to us. But as individuals, our experiences are finite, and our minds are fickle. 
we remember the address and phone number from our childhood home, but we can't remember where we just put our keys. Uh, and accordingly, it becomes almost impossible for us to resist revising or rewriting our own stories, however we see fit from day to day. And so God commands and urges his people throughout all of Scripture, not simply to remember, but to do so habitually and collaboratively as families and communities, and to do so with integrity as a tribe of people who have been drawn together as one body. We see this when God commands the people of Israel to rest from their labors for a day, not because they had a tenacious Protestant work ethic, but rather to remind them that they are no longer slaves and to remember how they came to possess this new identity. As a church, we take time to remember all of the blessings we have received, and out of that spirit of gratitude, we worship, thanking God for the abundance of grace and mercy that we have seen poured out to his people, not simply in our lives, but in the lives of billions of people throughout history. And we see throughout the, the Psalms that this is what draws us here together in the first place. Life is a gift from God. Life is good. Let's spend time together celebrating, enjoying the gift, and thanking the one who gives it. But as a church, we are also called to remember together our sins. We reflect upon those things we have done that have hurt others and hurt ourselves, and as a result have offended our God, who loves his kids and wants what's best for us in life. As the church, we are also reminded, however, to lay those sins at the foot of the cross. We're reminded of an empty tomb and a risen Lord who forgot to stay dead. Christ assures us as those who have remembered his commands, even as we have failed to live accordingly, and as his disciples who gather around his table to eat and drink in remembrance of him, he assures us as the church that he has chosen this day to not remember our sins. Our sins are forgotten. Remembering, we confess to our Lord the most disgusting and despicable things about ourselves and our lives, and Jesus responds, that is not who you are. Remember, as I do, who I have created and called you to be. And it is in the power of this good news that our remembrance becomes rejoicing. But there is a certain danger when the church becomes a group of people who only ever look back over our shoulders in a world that's constantly revolving forward. Several years ago, I had the pleasure of studying in Orvieto, Italy, which is a beautiful kind of self-contained medieval city up on a hill. And the crown jewel of this city is an amazing cathedral that's right at the heart of everything. And one afternoon, I was in a smaller side chapel within this church studying the paintings that line the walls of this particular chapel and depict the book of Revelation. And as you stand there, you feel like you're in Revelation because there are angels flying up over your head on one side and there are demons being thrown towards the floor on the other side. And it's, it's like the closest thing they had to IMAX in the 14th century. But while I was in this chapel, suddenly I heard a big commotion near the entrance of the church, the sound of which was echoing throughout this cathedral. And after a few seconds, I was able to figure out what was happening. The church had been overrun by a group of loud, obnoxious American tourists. Or as the Italians call them, Americans. <laughs> Apparently unimpressed with the place, this loud little troop burst in and began marching around this cathedral, 
and I couldn't help but overhear that one of them was dramatically reading descriptions of restaurants in Florence from her travel guidebook. They were more concerned with finding a great restaurant, which like you're in Italy, you can't throw a rock without finding a great restaurant, uh, but they were more worried about what they were going to eat the following night than they were with this magnificent church that human hands, just like ours, had spent centuries building and caring for. So I continued trying to ignore this blitzkrieg of stupidity, but their voices were now getting louder and louder, and the footsteps were getting closer and closer. But then as they turned the corner, at that moment when I feared they were about to destroy the sanctity of this chapel, this woman who was in the middle of, middle of a sentence about an atmospheric bistro where Chianti is king, and locals lunch on soups, pastas, and... <gasps> She froze, and she lowered the book, and in a more hushed and reverent tone, staring into a picture of heaven, she said, my God, it's breathtaking. In that moment, I was reminded of this place. Her reaction was not unlike one I have seen and experienced so often walking into this sanctuary. My God. But I also could not help but think of how often we, like those tourists in the cathedral, walk through life with our noses buried in distractions, worrying about what we will eat or wear tomorrow, and oblivious to the beauty that's all around us. We rob ourselves of those rich moments in life that might fill us with a childlike sense of awe and wonder if only we could shut up for one second and pay attention. As Christians, we are called to be people who are attentive. We are to listen closely and watch carefully, knowing that the Spirit of God is at work all around us. Jesus tells his disciples to stay awake and pay attention. When he rebukes them, he does it by asking, Do you have eyes and fail to see? Do you have ears and fail to hear? And do you not remember? The church is intended by God to provide us with a place where we listen for his voice, as well as to it. We learn to perceive life and creation as God does. And as we do, he begins to speak and sing through these mighty instruments. As a church, we learn together to recognize that voice and grow able to perceive God's spirit at work. God instructs his children to create places that are sanctuaries from ordinary life. Places that are designed to allow God to lower the distractions from in front of our faces and gently lift our gazes up and away from the petty and trivial concerns of our day-to-day lives. A line in our text today describes what we read as the sin that clings so closely to us, but there are other ancient manuscripts that have this as the sin that distracts us so easily. As we enter this sanctuary and focus our attention on worshiping God and receiving his word, he promises us that he will command whatever storms are raging all around us in our lives to be still. The church is a place where God distracts us from our distractedness in order that we might listen and hear. In hearing, we receive his word. Believing, our sight is restored. And so the church has been called to listen and remember the good news of our Lord. And remembering, we listen anew to his word for us here and now. But as the living body of Christ, these things are the breath of life that renew and sustain us. We gather here to inhale this breath, 
but then the body exhales as we're scattered. And this leads to the final calling of the church, my favorite, which is to go and to broadcast this good news. When I say broadcast, you might think of radio or TV or an online channel. But before those things were invented, the term broadcast was used to refer to a pair of specialized skills. First, it referred to the way that fishermen would open up their nets broadly and cast them into the water in such a way that they wouldn't get tangled or twisted. Second, broadcast referred to the way that a farmer or a sower would scatter seed in such a way that it would be evenly distributed throughout the soil so that each one might have a chance to spread its roots and grow. In both cases, there's a very subtle technique that's learned through years of experience, but then also a big, bold, embodied gesture. Interestingly, broadcast was not originally used to describe radio simply because of the size and scope of the audience. It was because of the performers in those early days who were accustomed to commanding a live audience face to face, but now had to go into this small, silent room. These broadcasters would lament how, even though they believed this promise that they might be reaching people somehow, they hated trying to connect with what felt like the deadest audience that the world had ever known. Some of these broadcasters were disheartened. They still had beautiful songs to sing and amazing stories to tell, but listeners could sense their lack of passion or even boredom. Other broadcasters became anxious. They tried to tinker with how they spoke and tweak what they said, hoping it might somehow resonate uh, better in this strange new context. But again, those who were listening could tell something was off. They didn't hear what they had been hoping they might. It quickly became apparent what the secret to broadcasting is. Faith. Fishermen have seen nets come up full of fish, and so they cast their own empty nets with a prayer into the abyss, trusting that God is at work even in the darkest depths of his creation and that he will provide for his people once again, and he does. The sower has faithfully listened and watched attentively and learned the rhythms of life and death and discerns when the moment is right to broadcast seeds of new life into that place of death, knowing that not every seed will grow, but trusting beyond any shadow of a doubt, as sure as the sun is shining this morning, that God will cause new life to burst forth from that ground. It is with this kind of boldness that we as the church are called to broadcast the love of Christ into this world by allowing the love of our Lord to blossom and grow into full bloom in our hearts. We faithfully pursue God's call in each of our lives and slowly from moment to moment we grow into who we've always really known we were supposed to be. We are not called to broadcast this love through a megaphone. We cannot sow seeds of change that will take root and grow in this world through eloquence or coercion. No, we're called to go and be the love of Christ. We broadcast this love with a reckless abandon, trusting the tried and true technique of being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. By faith we broadcast, not knowing who sees or who hears or caring if, when, or how new life might appear. We sing because we are happy. We sing because we are free. Church is not called to be a place where we attend and pretend this whole Christian thing. We're not called to simply get back up and go merrily on our way. 
The church implores us to stand up together as one and demonstrate the self-sacrificial love of Christ for a world that groans and aches with hunger to receive this good news. As the bride of Christ, his church is called to broadcast this love with the urgency and the fearlessness of a mother pulling her babies from a burning building. But we are not sent out to run this race that awaits us alone. We do not leave as the same orphans, widows, and outcasts that we walked in here as. We stand together as the church as a symbol of our solidarity and our commitment to one another and to our God. We stand united in fellowship with one another as an act of defiance against a fragmented and broken world. Together, as one body, we find the courage to fight back the fears, fatigue, and indifference that hinder us. It is together as Christ's church, remembering such a great cloud of witnesses, that we summon the strength and the power to persevere in love. I began this sermon with a joke, but I'd like to end it with a bit of divine comedy. When I started preparing for today, as you might imagine, I was feeling pretty nervous. So I paused for a moment to pray and ask God to guide me and speak through me. And then finally I thought, God, please just help me preach a sermon that my grandpa might be proud of. Not long after that prayer, I happened to find an old bulletin from Christ Church uh, that was dated April 18th, 1982, 33 years ago yesterday. And right away as I looked through this bulletin, something caught my attention. It turns out that Christ Church had marked its own 17th anniversary that particular morning in a rather understated and future-focused kind of way. Our church family welcomed a new member into its midst that morning by participating in the sacrament of baptism for a baby boy who had been born on his grandpa's birthday and was named Arthur after him. I can't say whether or not you've heard a very good message about the church here this morning, but I do know that you've been looking right at a great one. My beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, upon every remembrance of this church, I give thanks to my God, who is from age to age the same, and whose love shall persevere forever. Amen.